Are you looking for your next podcast binge to lose yourself in? Let me introduce you to a story that begins with sweet romance but quickly turns into betrayal and the far-reaching consequences of one man's deceit. It's an account told by the women whose lives were forever changed by it. You probably think the stories about you is a podcast hosted by Brittany Art. And it's not just another podcast. It's an exploration of self-discovery, growth, resilience, and healing. And it's all told in a unique format. And this is why I'm so excited about this one. This is Brittany's story, but she doesn't just host it like a podcast in the traditional sense. Through immersive soundscapes and the voices of the women affected by these events, this podcast creates such a unique experience experience that's going to make your headphones glow in the dark. I can't wait to get started and I hope you'll join me. Listen and follow. You'll probably think the stories about you wherever you listen to podcasts. Ever wonder what psychologists talk about over coffee? I'm Debbie Sorensen, a clinical psychologist in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, where I specialize in rehab and health psychology and acceptance and commitment therapy. And I'm Diana Hill, a clinical psychologist in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California, where I specialize in mindfulness and values-based approaches to therapy. In this podcast, we bring psychology research into practice by discussing topics from psychology with experts in the field and with each other. You'll get a glimpse into the books we read, the research we think is interesting, and the ideas from psychology that we use to thrive in our own lives. Thank you for listening to Psychologist Off the Clock. Good morning, Debbie. Good morning, Diana. So we had a great episode last time with morning routines, and now that you have your morning routine down, I'm wondering, are you ready to dive into some work? Yes. Today we're going to be talking about how to focus more on your work once you get your morning routine done and you're ready to to get to work. Um, And so one thing, Diana, that I really love about having our very own podcast is how we get to work on ideas with personal relevance to us. And when we have a problem or something we want to address, we can use our podcast prep as and our material as, an, as something to help our own selves. Um, this is the this same as being a psychologist, too. Right. Oh, totally. We apply, yeah. we apply all of this stuff to ourselves. Um, and so I'm going to tell you about a little problem that I've been having in my own life lately that kind of led to this episode. Um, so I just noticed that there were a lot of times when I have so much to get done, and I... Um, have this plan. I have like a couple of hours in which to do it or even maybe an hour or whatever. But when I sit down to get this task accomplished, I'm feeling kind of overwhelmed. I have too many things to do. I'm really easily distracted and I just have trouble focusing enough to get it done. So what would happen is that the time would just pass by and I would maybe you know, get sidetracked by responding to emails or looking at something on the internet, and I would just get off task and have a really hard time. The time would pass, and the thing was still not done. And I just realized, I just felt like my brain was kind of scattered so much that I had a hard time just really doing what I needed to to do. And so I just really wanted to take a look at this. And so what I did is I turned to the psychology, psychology literature on attention and focusing. And I know you also looked at some literature for this. Um, and we both just took a look to see what we could learn about attention and focusing and distraction. And then also to find if there are any helpful suggestions that we could, could glean from the research. And as I was looking through this, I really noticed, I started reading, but then also talking to people about this. And so many people are experiencing this right now. 
just this really hard time kind of staying on task and focusing. Yes, I feel like attention is really becoming an endangered species. It's hard to pay attention to all the distractions that we have. And what we are finding is that both our culture and our neurobiology are really working against us in terms of being able to have sustained attention. So we're going to give you some tips today about how to get uh, your attention a little bit stronger and how to focus up. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, and I think you're right. There are a lot of factors, both cultural and just our neurobiology, that really uh, kind of contribute to this problem. And so we'll kind of start there. Like, what's causing this? And to me, as I was reading and kind of reflecting on my own experience, I was just paying a whole lot of attention to this in my own life as I was as I was looking at this. And it really came up with three sort of overall, I guess, culprits of why attention is such a problem. Okay, first of all, for me, and I think for a lot of people in our society, just overwhelm and stress. Just to put it simply, having too much to do. So in our modern life, we have a lot of time pressure. Everyone's just expected to be working a lot, to be sort of online all the time and ready to respond to emails and texts. We have just so many domestic and personal tasks that we have to take care of. And I know for me, like my to-do list, when I look at it, I have like a work to-do list and a personal to-do list. And I, it will, like, cause me to start to have a panic attack because it's so many things to do. I can't possibly do them all. I really can't. And I was reading a book that um, I had picked up a while ago called Overwhelmed, Work, Love, and Play When No One Has the Time. It's by a journalist, um, Bridge Schulte. I, pro- I may have said that wrong. But anyway, she's a journalist, and she describes just how chronically overstressed Americans tend to be, many Americans, and how just exhausting modern life can be as it is. And really, our bodies are designed to handle some stress. It's part of engaging in a meaningful life. There's just no way to to totally reduce stress, and nor do we want to. But when we have just this chronic stress and this feeling that we can never keep up, um, it really does kind of make it harder to focus. So I was looking at some research from the Yale Stress Center, and they've really shown that our brain activity is different when we're in kind of a stressed-out state versus a relaxed state, um, and that also chronic stress can cause our prefrontal cortex to work less efficiently. Diana, you're going to talk a little bit about that um, later. And also um, that the cognitive effects of having chronic stress can really impact your ability to concentrate and it can just cause your mind to kind of wander into things like worry and, um, you know, it just makes it really hard to focus when you're feeling so stressed out and overwhelmed, which so many of us are. And then the next sort of overall culprit in this is, of course, technology. I think everyone can experience this, that in our environment right now, we just have so much information coming at us and so many interruptions. You know, we just have constant distractions from text messages, emails, um, the temptation of the Internet. And, you know, when I'm sitting at my desk at work, I get a lot of IMs and you know, instant messages, and they just kind of take me off task. And really, we're just, um, the Internet is sort of taking advantage of our tendency as humans that we naturally have to be distractible. And there's a book I looked at called Attention Merchants, sorry, Attention Merchants, This Epic Scramble to Get Inside Our Heads by Tim Wu. And it's really about how there's a lot of money to be made off of getting people's attention. That's where a lot of, you know, marketing is taking place right now is just trying to 
trying to make it so that your attention is captured by something. And so basically there are a lot of smart people who are trying to find ways to entice you into paying attention with what they want you to. Um, And so that just makes it really hard and it adds to that kind of frazzled, distractible feeling in our society. And I like to think about how – A lot of times what we're getting distracted by is very compelling, and it's more immediately reinforcing than whatever task it is that you're trying to work on. So, like, if you think about you're going to sit down at your computer and work on sort of a boring work task, how that feels compared to the sort of enticing nature of, like, Facebook or Pinterest or some sort of web page that's very, like, visually appealing that gets you into this kind of, you know, certain mindset, you could see how it's really you could easily be enticed to pay more attention to that than to the boring work task. So that's number two, is just the lure of technology. And then the third culprit really goes back to that idea of neurobiology and just the nature of the human mind. So our minds are just naturally very busy. They like to chatter away. They like to kind of bop around to think about the past, to worry about the future. Our attention is very limited. It's We have a very limited capacity for sustained attention, actually, and our attention gets very easily fatigued. So we just, our minds have a hard time with this and we struggle with it. And there could be an evolutionary basis for this. Like, as, you know, our ancestors were trying to survive, they had to kind of stay vigilant and shift attention and stay alert. So, you know, there's some biology behind this, and really, this is all just what humans' mind do sort of naturally, but what happens is that it just makes it, our minds are so busy that it makes it really hard to just focus and pay attention. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because our mind is constantly filtering out stimuli, so I want to do a little exercise around this, which is pay attention to your big toe. And see if you can notice the sensations in your big toe, maybe your left big toe. And you can start to, you know, can you see, can you you feel some sensations in there? Yeah. Yeah. I can feel it, like, contacting my shoe. Yeah. Yeah. And normally, would you have any attention on your big toe? No. No. I had not noticed that until you said that. All the time, our frontal lobe is inhibiting attention to our big toe. Yeah. Yeah. Uh Until we start to give it, sort of remove that filter and pay attention to it. And what is what is happening is that our, our brain should be filtering out a lot of information because that's the only way you can pay attention is to filter out extraneous stimuli like your big toe. It yeah. would be a problem if you have that attention all the time. What is happening is that the things that are coming at us are so strong in a sensory way, like bright images, loud sounds, fast images, that our attention, our filters aren't working so well. And so it's as if we had, like, you know, bright lights on our big toes and our elbows and our fingers, and we have to pay attention all. It would be hard to walk, right? And that's what's happening in our in our current environment. And people are getting, like you said, really skilled at how to make those things so enticing that our filters can't filter them out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. A lot harder to filter out compelling Internet content than your big toe touching your shoe. Exactly. Right. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Okay, so those are the the sort of culprits, overall categories of the culprits that I came up with. And I'm sure there are others, that, but I, I would imagine that most people can relate to those those ideas. And now we're going to move a little bit into talking about some different states of attention um, that sort of come up throughout the day. And we're going to also talk a little bit about some of the psychology and the bi- biology behind what's going on with attention. Mm-hmm. 
So I'm going to talk about three states of attention we experience throughout the day. And a lot of these ideas came from a book I called, I read called Focus by Daniel Goleman. Um, but I'm kind of tying things together from different sources and kind of making a bit of an oversimplification here. But there are a couple of different states that we experience. The first I'm going to call sharp focus. And this is when we're really paying selective close attention to a particular task. And we're just staying on task. So this could be kind of, I think, similar to when we talk about a flow state where you're just really immersed in something and paying so much attention to it that the rest of the world sort of fades and time passes sort of quickly. And I have just a personal example. Diana, did I tell you I'm taking a beginning adult ballet class? I love that. Yeah, it's, it's, really so fun. it's super hard. But anyway, um, we spend 90 minutes, and I'm so focused on these minutia, like the way my knee is being held. I'm pointing my toe and, like, tr- curving my spine in. Um, that everything else just fades away, and all I'm paying attention to for 90 minutes is trying to learn this new thing. So it's just when you're really sustained attention on something. Um, But we can only really do this for so long because it takes a lot of effort and our brain gets kind of fatigued. And I've noticed in my ballet class that toward the end of the 90 minutes, I have a harder time sort of following all the instructions. So we have to do a little, like a few steps in a row at the end, and she'll give the instructions to my teacher, and I'll be like, well, I, I just can't even, like, follow it anymore because my brain is just so fatigued from trying to learn this new task. Um, but what kind of happens when we do this is that our, our brain kind of synchronizes. Um, neuroscientist Richie Davidson calls it phase locking, which is where it's kind of like a beam of awareness shining on one thing. So, like, our brain synchronizes, and we start to really use the circuits of the brain that are needed for that particular task, and the other areas of the brain are relatively quiet. So, really, we're just very attuned to the demands of that particular task. Right, and it's the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex in particular that filters out the other distracting stimuli. So it's that frontal lobe part of our brain, which is our inhibitor and a really good filter. And when you, when people that have difficulty with attention, like ADHD, they um, it's in part because they have a hard time inhibiting distractors or, or activating this part of the brain. What's interesting, though, is that we can actually train um, our DLP into becoming stronger at attending. And when they've uh, measured, actually meditators that have sustained attention, very experienced meditators, they actually find that with that type of training, it requires less energy to maintain that sustained focus. So that fatigue that you're feeling at the end of your ballet class, you may not feel after doing ballet for, you know, a few years. That's true. Because you train up your brain. And that's actually one of the things that uh, that we can start to work on and why meditation is actually a helpful, in many different ways, one way that meditation is helpful is the brain training exercise of how to sustain uh, a long-term attention and actually like develop that muscle. Absolutely. Time. Yeah. Another thing that people can do to increase uh, the the strength of this area of the brain is do memorization types of activities. And not rote memorization, but actually memorizing in uh, certain ways. So like memorizing a deck of cards. And there's a whole strategy to memorizing a deck of cards, which is kind of interesting, where you imagine yourself going through different rooms with different uh, with different objects in each room and a person representing each card with each object. And over time, you can memorize all 52 
Uh, so if you're interested in that, you can actually learn how to do that through Cal Newport's book, Deep Work, which we're talking more about. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds hard. (laughs) Okay. Great. Yeah. And okay, so this, so that's the first state, sharp focus. And the second state that I want to talk about is called, well, we're going to call it open focus, which is a, just a more general, kind of less honed in on one thing. But this is sort of where your mind is wandering. Um, and we spend a lot of time in this state, actually. But our mind can wander specifically in sometimes a creative kind of way where we're generating ideas, we're daydreaming, we're reflecting, we're thinking about a problem that we're facing, and this can be an, a state that can be actually helpful in some ways sometimes because it can help us um, come up with ideas and also give the attention circuits of our brain a little rest. We actually need some time for this to happen so that, you know, that fatigue, you know, kind of, if we spend too much time focusing, we get fatigued, so we need time to just kind of let our brain just sort of roam around free. Yeah. 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 And when our mind wanders, it activates this whole network of our brain called the default mode network. And it's sort of the daydreaming kind of uh, part of the brain, which involves the medial and prefrontal cortex, the posterior cingulate cortex, which is at the back of the brain. And it's really, that's negatively correlated with the attentional network. It's also interesting that when we let our mind wander too much, that is also correlated with being unhappy. There's this sort of seminal paper called a wandering mind is an unhappy mind. So it's important to let your mind wander and to give it that rest, but not to always be in mind-wandering mode, that there's actually important to attend to the present moment, especially when you're doing enjoyable things right. in your life. And what, what the other piece of information I found was interesting is that this default mode network doesn't show up until we're about eight or nine years old. In infants, they don't see the same type of neural circuitry, which may also kind of map onto what we see with children are very much in the present moment. They're not in their head. Right. Right? Yeah. I mean, they do fantasy play, but they're not daydreaming when they're, when they're sitting talking to you. They're not, they don't have another mind wandering going on. So it's something that we develop a little bit later on. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. yeah. So both of those states, even though maybe, you know, you don't want to spend too much time in number two, especially if it's getting into unhelpful, like ruminating or worrying, but really both of these states are important. And there are some learning experts who suggest that really ideally when you're trying to learn some new material, you kind of want to toggle between those two states, um, sort of sustain focus attention and then giving your mind a break to kind of relax and wander and hopefully be creative and generate ideas. Um, So, you know, we kind of have both of those alternating. Unfortunately, though, there's a third state which um, where I spend too much time, and this is kind of the problem I'm having that led to this episode, um, and I think probably as a society, most of us spend too much time here nowadays, and this is, so in the Goldman focus book, he calls it frazzle. So this is a state where stress is kind of overloading our nervous system with cortisol and adrenaline, and we are kind of distracted, our mind is all over the place, we're often kind of multitasking, like trying to do a whole bunch of things at once, and we're just kind of in this unhelpful place where we're, our mind is just not focused, but it's also not just sort of wandering in a restful way. So, you know, to me, this is when you're trying to, like, do five things at once on your computer and you're kind of, your mind is just all over the place. And multitasking, there's some really interesting research about multitasking, which is something that we often do, I think, as 
we try to do is a shortcut where we're trying to engage in more than ta- one task at a time thinking, oh, well, if I do both of these things at once, it's really going to help me, um, you know, get a lot done in a short amount of time. But really, we're not actually paying attention to more to multiple things at a time, what we're doing is kind of switching our attention back and forth between things. Um, and what what kind of happens is that we're, that process of shifting, of kind of starting and stopping, actually makes us less efficient and more prone to mistakes. So when you're trying to, to save time by doing multiple things at once, you may just want to pay attention to that because often it isn't really actually a very effective strategy. Right. So this attention switching really requires... Uh, parts of our brain that require a lot of energy. We actually deactivate that default mode network, and we use a, a lot of central executive networks, and including the right frontal insular cortex and the anterior cingulate cortex. And when we're doing attention switching, there is two things that are problematic about it. One is there's something called attention residue, and this is something that Cal Newport and Deforp talks about, which is when you switch from one task to another, some of your attention kind of gets stuck on the first task, right. and so it doesn't really follow you all the way. <laughs> so when you get to the second task, you don't have 100%. Yeah, okay. your mind's like halfway yeah. behind, yeah. Your mind is halfway behind, and this really affects your, your performance. There's also... Uh, a more permanent change into the neurostructure of your brain that your brain gets really used to attention switching. And that may not be something that you want it to be used to because when it gets used to attention switching and when you go and try and sit down to be focused on just one thing, your brain is easily pulled uh, pulled away. And it's harder to be have a sustained focus. So if we think about even with, with kids and tasks these days, there are in in classrooms, children, or not children, young, junior high level, they have their phones now in classrooms, and that is something that's impacting their attentional focus, the ability to focus in the classroom because they can pull up on their phone something and that quickly takes attention away from the teacher and the lesson at hand. Likewise, in college, kids have computers, uh, iPads, phones, in lectures. I have plenty of college students that are talking about being in lecture, and they know that they can get the video of the lecture later. So they just sit there and work on another paper or an email, and they kind of listen to the lecture a little bit. And they're not really retaining the information of the lecture in the same way as if they were sitting there just focusing. So we have lots of things that are... Uh, pulling our attention to this, this uh, attention switching, and it has both attention residue but also neurobiological structure. That we, we can work on restructuring, but it requires some energy. Uh-huh. One thing I want to note, though, is that not all multitasking is equally draining. So some of us need, you know, when I cook dinner, I'm chopping vegetables, I'm less, often listening to a podcast or listening to the news, and that is fine. When you don't have two really demanding tasks, it's fine to, to multitask. Right. What we're talking about here is when we have, we're trying to do two challenging tasks at once. Yeah, unless you're trying to chop vegetables mindfully for some reason, you probably don't right. need a lot of focus to do that. Right. Yeah. If I was yeah. Japanese chef, I would be. <laughs> You'd be a little more zen, Diana. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. But yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah. So I wanted to talk a little bit about this this concept of deep work, which comes from Cal Newport, and he studied. He's a uh, assistant professor, maybe a professor now at Georgetown University, and he was really interested in 
how people are able to uh, create meaningful work and sustain their attention at work. And he studies the lives of really influential people, people everything everything from Carl Jung to Charles Darwin to Bill Gates, J.K. Rowling, and really makes an important an argument for this concept of being able to do work deeply. And he defines deep work as professional activities performed in a state of distraction-free concentration that push your cognitive capabilities to their limit. These efforts create new value, improve your skill, and are hard to replicate. Debbie, where do you find yourself doing deep work? Like, do you have that experience or well, in your life? Well, you know, we were just, we were kind of joking as we were prepping this episode about how actually doing this took a bit of deep work for both of us. We had to focus on some reading. We had to synthesize material. We had to sort of be creative in terms of how we wanted to put these ideas together and connect the dots from different things we were, you know, thinking about. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good example of a a state of deep work, especially there was one particular night that I devoted a couple of hours to this and I was very immersed into it and you know my juices were flowing it felt great yeah yeah exactly and that's in contrast to shallow work which is a lot of often how we spend our time and the type of work we do which is non-cognitively demanding this is a quote from Tommy Burke non-cognitively demanding logistical style tasks often performed while distracted these efforts tend to not create much new value in the world and are easy to replicate. Yes, mundane. Yes. <laughs> yes. Mundane. So this is the answering your emails or just doing the paperwork. You know, you have the TV on in the background. And uh-huh. Yep. And what Newport is arguing is that as there is, there's a greater need for people to engage in deep work because our economy is changing. And there's less, there's less of a need for people to work in labor and more for people to be able to operate what he calls intelligent machines or design intelligent machines. And the people who are going to succeed in the future are going to be either people that can work creatively with intelligent machines, computers, or those who are at the very top of what they do. And I was thinking about this in terms of something like telemedicine. So when I have a health problem now, or I had a health issue, I was able to work with a doctor in Arizona because I looked up who is the best person to do to work with this, and you can go and find someone in another state to work with them. So you're going to choose somebody who is the best at what mm-hmm. they do. And in order to be the best at what you do, or to be able to work creatively designing intelligent machines, you need to have put in some deep work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You don't want to get outsourced by something that can just do the menial task. Well, and I think it's interesting because you always hear about how in Silicon Valley where people are creating the, you know, the apps and the technology that we're using, they are spending time doing deep work in which they are not actually distracted by their own technology. Right, exactly. They're carving out time where they are distraction-free. Some some companies have Tuesday mornings between 9 and 1, no emails, no contact. That's the deep work time. So people are naturally starting to understand that we need to have deep work. They're also doing things in Silicon Valley like taking nootropics to enhance their brain activity to be able to focus. Right. So this is uh, something that people are becoming more and more aware of. And a lot of schools in tech in Silicon Valley are tech free. I just read something about this. I mean, that's very interesting. A lot of teachers now are having baskets and I'm actually thinking about putting a basket outside my office 
for people to put their phones in before they come in because there's many times in a session where people are getting beeped and buzzed and why that if someone wants to grab their phone to look up something during our session and it really interferes with the deep work Mm -hmm. of the session. So as the need for us to do deep work to be successful on this planet increases, what's interesting is that our ability to do work is increasingly rare. We're we're less able to do it. We're less good at it. And I was thinking about in my own career the times that I've done deep work in terms of of college and in graduate school really required me to pull out and have a specific type of focus. So I was pre-med biopsychology student in in college, and so I had some courses like OCHEM that required a lot of deep work, and I remember that I had the philosophy of I never went to the study groups. I always first studied independently and then brought my question to the groups, because what I found was whenever I went to one of those groups of college students studying together, we would spend four or five hours of, quote, studying together, really it was a lot of chatting. Chat, right. Yeah, <laughs> chatting. And then, and then we would, you know, study for a little bit. So what I could do in an hour would take four hours mm-hmm. because I needed to have that deep-focused work and then go to the group to collaborate and talk with, you know, with the group members about questions that I had. Another way that I practiced deep work was when I was in uh, graduate school, we would take these ski trips every few weekends, and that would be a time where I would sit, I'd take my dog, go with my partner, I'd sit inside the, uh, the ski lodge, and I would work six to eight to ten hours while my partner would go off and ski. And it was a time that I would hold up and do this really type of, this intensive deep work where it was just me and my dog and my computer working on my dissertation. And so it was also another sort of example that we we need to pull pull and remove distractions when we're doing deep work. Mm -hmm. We don't always, what you were mentioning early is this principle of least resistance, Debbie, which is we have a tendency to engage in behaviors that are easiest for us in the moment. And especially when we're not getting feedback on how on how we are doing. So it's easier to, when you approach your work, to sit and go through all your emails than it is to sit down and work on that report. That oh, you yeah. Do. Yep. Takes yeah. a lot less effort, for sure. It takes a lot. And that's what our brain just naturally does. And our culture, Newport, in his book, says that our culture of connectivity actually feeds in on that because we're getting so much information all the time that's sort of social information that we just want to tend to that instead of doing the harder the harder work. So even the way that they're structuring workspaces, having open workspaces, is not really facilitating deep work. It's facilitating a lot of connectivity, which is great, but it's hard to, to focus when you have people walking by your office and coming in and checking in on you on you all the time. Mm-hmm. Or you're encouraged to be have a big you know social media presence. It interferes a lot and there's a lot of wasted time. Mm-hmm. Yep. So Kelp Noport also talks about how our ability to pay attention not only is important for productivity, it also affects the meaning in our life. And he says that our brains construct our worldview based on what we pay attention to. You are what you pay attention to. So in the same way that Rick Hansen has talked about 
paying attention to positive things, when we pay attention to our work and we can get into that state of flow, it feels really good. And that's what you were alluding to, Debbie, when you were talking about working on the podcast, where time just flies by and you've been working, you get really deep into something and it feels like you're immersed. And I noticed that even just in my sessions with clients, sometimes when we're doing really deep work together and we're both focused in on the task at hand and getting creative with each other about whatever it is they're working on, a 15-minute session can feel like 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. It just flies by. And I actually think as a therapist, you're doing a lot of deep work because there are no other distractions except for the person in front of you, which contributes to, at least for me, that sense of meaning. I feel like when I go in and I see five clients, I've had an intensity of focus over those five hours. It's really cool. Yeah. There, you're right. There's deep work happening there between both people usually. Right. And part of that, our technology is off. So right. what was fascinating <laughs> is that Cal Newport is one. He said he's one of the only people in his 30s that's uh, not on Facebook and has never been on Facebook. And I am also one of those. <laughs> one of the people. few rare. You're a very yeah. rare species. Rare species. <laughs> but what's interesting is that even when I don't have all these super stimulating social media, I will still go on my phone to do, like, check the weather compulsively. And I live in Santa Barbara, which is... <laughs> like, it's always the same. Yeah, no, you need to check the Denver weather instead. It's much more variable. It's so much more variable. I guess it's very intermittent reinforcing for me because every once in a while we'll get a rainstorm. So, but we still are pulled away uh, from, from our lives, from, from being able to focus. Okay, so now we're going to move into some, we've kind of painted an overview of what's going on with all this, and we are now going to move into some ideas that we've gleaned from our our research for how to improve your focus, if this is something that you, too, are working on. Okay. Okay, so the first idea, so we mentioned earlier, attention is really something that you can strengthen with practice, kind of like a muscle. You know, you want to give it a little bit of, um, you know, a, a workout once in a while. And a really great way to do this is with mindfulness practice. We're kind of a broken record on this podcast about mindfulness. Um, but really, you know, when you do mindfulness, you'll, you'll notice often that the um, exercises that you might try really involve awareness of when your mind is kind of wandering off task. And that's a huge step. I think just the awareness piece alone, if you can catch yourself, you know, when your mind is drifting or when you're getting distracted or multitasking, that's half the battle. And then, you know, in mindfulness, often you'll just redirect your attention back to the present moment, back to your breathing or whatever it is. Um, And so just practicing that can really help build that attention muscle. Strengthening your executive function of your brain. Just think about those networks getting stronger and more connected. Yep. And there's some really good research in neuroscience about this right now. So it's it's research-based for sure. A second kind of tip that we have, which is related, I think, is really even if you're doing this, take a gentle approach to it. Minds are so funny. When we really try to focus them too tightly and and constrict our minds, not only do they get fatigued, but they also just get sort of agitated. Like, minds really don't like being sort of forced to focus on something, and that makes it harder. It's just a paradox. It makes it harder to focus. And, you know, in the last um, episode about morning practice, I talked about doing this this mindfulness app called Headspace. And he, in pretty much all of the exercises, he has this period where he says, and now just let your mind wander and do what it wants. 
And to me, it's just so interesting because at that point, that's usually when my mind just sort of quiets down. It's when I stop kind of trying to force it to pay attention. And I think that's really true. So as you're doing this, just if you notice you're really struggling with your mind, just try to just step back and be a little bit more gentle. Great. Okay, number three is don't task switch or multitask when you're engaging in deep work. So when you catch yourself doing it, slow down and focus on just one thing at a time and then remind yourself that it's ultimately more efficient and you'll do things better if you focus on just one thing. You can even focus on, if, if you want to be thinking about work, you can focus on thinking just about work. And Cal Newport suggests something called productive meditation, which is a practice where you go for a walk or you're engaging in something that just keeps your body busy, and you focus on just thinking about that one problem. <laughs> so it could be that you go for a run and you want to solve the problem of how you're going to design your kitchen, and you think about how you're going to you know, organize everything in your kitchen remodel or whatever. And when you do that, it's to help your mind just focus on solving that one problem so it doesn't keep on popping up when you're trying to do your work you know, later on, your kitchen remodel pops into your brain. So you can actually carve out certain times to focus on problems, and it could be just mental problems that you want to work on, or it could be on the actual uh, work, you know, physical work of, like, writing a report and things like that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So another tip that we have is to mix periods of sustained attention with breaks, kind of shifting into a different type of activity before your mind gets too fatigued and can't focus anymore. And there's a method that um, is called the Pomodoro method, which is one version of this. There's a lot of different ways you can do this. And it's by Francesco Cirillo. This is actually kind of an old one. It's a couple decades old. Um, and I heard about it from my husband because he's in, he does computer programming. And this is something that they talk about in the, the computer programming world because that's something where you do need sustained attention. But if you don't take breaks, it can get really hard to, to keep that focus going. And so, and the name Pomodoro comes from, you know, those little tomato-shaped kitchen timers? Yeah. So he used one of those. Um, Because what you, uh, but, you know, you can find an app for it now. So if you don't have a (laughs) tomato-shaped timer, that's fine. But what he, what you do basically is you decide on the task, you set your timer, and usually, traditionally, he would have you do 25 minutes, and then you work with no distractions. And if anything pops to mind during that period, you just write it down and think, okay, I'll, I'll think about this later. So you just really focus for 25 minutes. When your timer rings, you take a short break, like three to five minutes, you know, get up, stretch, just let your mind rest, and then repeat that. And, and the idea is that you do four of those cycles, and then you take a longer break, like a 15 to 30-minute break, maybe go for a walk or get a meal or something like that. And then if you have time, you start over, and you kind of repeat that cycle. So it's a method of kind of maxing out the amount of focused attention your mind can do for a period of time. And that's great because there's studies that have shown that people who take 15-minute breaks every couple hours actually end up being more productive. But those breaks really do need to allow for mind-wandering, so walking or staring out the window or listening to music. And scheduling this type of downtime really is important to sort of restore our attention and restore these areas of attention. There's actually something called the attention restoration theory, which talks about being out in nature as one of the things that increases our creativity. Uh, Those are some of the studies that we talked about in our nature episode, Mm -hmm. where people went for walks in nature and they were more creative in solving problems. 
Yeah, and that gets you more into that open focus or mind wandering instead of frazzled. Because a lot of times when we take a break, we'll check our email, respond to a text message. That's not the same thing. Right. I co- I, when I coach uh, clients who are going into taking licensing exams or things like that, I say on your 10-minute break when you're taking a licensing exam, don't, like, get out your phone and start, you know, right. scrolling through. Take that 10 minutes to go walk around the block and just yeah. give, your, give your mind a breather. There's also something that could be helpful, which uh, Cal Newport talks about, which is a, a shutdown ritual. And this is particularly important for in the evening if, when you want to end your day. And a lot of times people have the problem of turning off their minds at the end of the day. And there's actually something called the, the Garnet effect, which is basically your, mom, your mind keeps on solving unfinished problems. And it'll wake you up in the middle of the night. People have this experience quite often. I remember so, that from our licensing exam. Yeah, yeah. the E-triple-P. <laughs> the garnet effect? Yeah, yeah. The wording of it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the garnet effect. I know, it's all one that we related to because we were having yeah. that problem. But in order to prevent the garnet or to combat the garnet effect that, that your mind's going to keep on working on the problem when you don't want it to, is you need to have some sort of shutdown ritual at the end of the day that tells your mind I'm done. And it may be writing down the tasks for tomorrow so that you know that you're going to be able to work on it tomorrow, or it may be certain procedures, like in some office buildings now, all the lights turn off at 6 o'clock and all the Internet turns off at 6 o'clock, so you have to end. Mm-hmm. It's done. So things like that are actually helpful to have closure and be able to have some downtime. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So number six is create conditions for deep work and really design your your work schedule in a way that works best for you. So there's four different types of work schedules that Hal Newport talks about. And the first one is the monastic approach, which is basically cutting yourself off from the outside world and going away <laughs> to work. This is what I did during my dissertation when I would take those, those trips to just get away from everything to the mountains and just hunker down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... That doesn't necessarily work for everybody. So there's also something called the bimodal uh, approach, which is where you divide your time into stretches of deep work and then read the, leave the rest open. And this is actually how I work now. So I work certain days a, a week where I am just Diana, psychologist, get my work clothes, go to work, that's my day, come home. And then there's other days where I'm completely off and I'm only in yoga pants. Mm-hmm. And so I'm either in deep work of doing my work or I'm off. And that uh, can be helpful because the switching on and off, when I used to do, I'd see a few clients in the morning, be with kids in the afternoon, and then see some clients when the kids went to bed. That was so much, even if I saw the same number of clients in a day, it was so much more exhausting to me because I was switching on and off from these different modes of being. It was mm-hmm. really, really hard to work that way, at least for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other type is the rhythmic philosophy, and this is where you establish sort of a rhythm of work that has a schedule to it. So your day would look the same pretty much every day. That's where you would say, okay, in the morning is when I do my writing for my book I'm writing, and then the afternoon is when I do my emails, and the evenings, uh, whatever, I do something else. So you have a really routine, and what this does is it helps your uh, your mind get into a habit formation of how your work is going to look. The last type, which is actually the most challenging type, is the journalistic philosophy. And this is where you schedule out your deep work to occur whenever you get a chance. And, <laughs> Debbie, I think 
you said, this is what you do. Yeah. I mean, I hate to say it because I would love, especially the monastic approach. I'm like, oh, that sounds great. But I really do, you know, we talked last time about how I tend to be a little unstructured in my life. But I really just kind of take the time when I can get it. I mean, when we were preparing this podcast episode, there were a couple days when I would do it while my kids were doing, I try to enforce quiet time. But that can last anywhere from like half an hour to 45 minutes to like five minutes. Some days they just can't you know, tolerate it for very long. So it's like I work, but it it can't be very long. And there was one day actually when I got to, I was meeting some friends for dinner and I got there a little bit early because I was coming from somewhere else. And I sat there and I read in the car for 20 minutes. I got so much done. It was just a 20 minute free period that I happened to have. And it's like, I'll take it. I'll take whatever I could get. That's just kind of how my life is right now. But that said, I am working, especially while working on this episode, I'm really working on trying to carve out those those periods for deep work more because you're right Mm -hmm. it's harder to just cram it in for five or ten minutes here and there right yeah and 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 sort of after you've decided on how you're going to approach your deep work and you can very much do it in the journalistic style but the way that you would do it in the journalistic style is also to make sure that you're doing some of these other strategies with it yeah Yeah. otherwise you're going to be so distracted so if you're going to sit in the car for those 20 minutes then you turn off the notifications on your phone phone on silent you know uh so Number seven is really setting some rituals to establish what deep work is going to look like for you. And this is to sort of, based on classical conditioning, to tell your brain this is time to work, to get you into the work mindset. One of the things that I've done forever is when I, when I practice yoga, I usually practice with uh, chanting or kirtan. And what I started doing uh, during, I think I even started this when I was in college, especially when I was studying really anxiety-producing material, is I would put on chanting because my brain had already been conditioned to this soothing response to chanting, and it doesn't have words that I understand, so it doesn't distract me. Uh-huh. People do this with classical music often. Mm-hmm. And what it does is it, it sets you up for this is the time that I'm going to be doing deep, doing deep work. So with establishing some rituals. Other people may have rituals like changing their office space or sitting in, in a certain chair where they're doing the work, having a, a tea ritual that they do, but really kind of making or having some rules for the session, like turning off the phone, internet, things like that, so that you're conserving your energy for deep working and your, and your brain knows, knows that this is the time to do it. Number uh, Another strategy is number eight, which is, County Court strategy of having a hub and spokes model to work. So we know that collaboration is really important for creativity, but at the same time, this concept of being really overly uh, connected is distracting us. So the hub and spokes model is having a hub where you collaborate with other people, but then when you go into your deep work, you're going out into the spokes of the wheel. And this is very much how you and I, Debbie, operate. We sort of come together, we collaborate, we come up with an idea around the podcast, and then we go off into our spokes, yeah. and we independently work on it, and we do our deep work, but we're not, while we're working on it, we're not checking in with each other the whole time. We're just right. sort of doing our thing, and then we bring it back together, and then we collaborate a little bit, and then we go off and do our independent thing. Yeah. And I think that that works pretty well for yeah. us. Yeah. Who knew? We yeah. were just doing that sort of naturally. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So number nine tips is actually a kind of a combination of tips that we have for minimizing distractions, because that's a key part of it. Is that you want these periods where you're doing what you can to keep the distractions from popping up. Um, so obviously, you know, things like, 
email and text messages are the worst enemies of focus. So you need to take breaks from them, maybe even be super hardcore like Diana and quit social media. (laughs) Um, But, you know, turning off notifications, like making it so turn off your phone or whatever um, so that you're just not getting that lure um, and just able to really focus. Yeah, and maybe even taking the approach of really choosing which tools are most beneficial to you. So getting, you don't have to be on every single social media. You don't have to quit every social media, but you also don't have to be on every social media tool out there. Which ones do you find that bring you the most benefit without as many negative consequences? I certainly see that in my practice where people are saying, I'm just on Instagram. That's the one that I really enjoy the most. Facebook was really hard for me, and so I just chose this one. So taking a look at at them and which ones um, have more positives. And in general, I don't think that we should be turning off our uh, notifications just when we're working. I think that we need to all be turning off our notifications, period. Yeah, that happened to me a lot, actually. Yeah. I mean, the only ones I get are text messages, but I used to get so many, and that was it made a huge difference. Yeah, the, the, and even with text messages, uh, I, so my partner has this, everything on Do Not Disturb 100% of the time, and it's really nice because he just goes in and checks it when he needs to check it and then comes back. And then you have more control. I still have my text. I can't, I can't quite get there with the text messages. Yeah. <laughs> I think it would be really good to, to have more of the choice uh, in our hands of when we go in and check rather than it just interfering it, it, it chooses when it's going right. to be fast all day long. Yeah, and set aside a time time. that works for you, and that's when you yeah. check all of it and then be done. Yeah, and that's and that's also part of the attention because when you're when you're going to your text message, you're training your mind to lose lose its attention. Yeah, another thing you can do to minimize distractions is to just look around your environment and try to reduce environmental clutter. So this could be a whole number of things. And it might be different person to person, but for me, one thing, I a lot of times have all these piles on my desk with, like, a to-do list here and something I'm working on there and then this and that. And actually just having it all in front of me is distracting um, because it makes me bop around from task to task. And similarly with having a whole bunch of different windows open on your computer, like if you're typing something into a, a Word document and you have, like, five other windows open on your screen at the same time, it's going to be really hard to focus on writing. So you want to just look at your environment and see how you can reduce those kinds of things. Also, noise noise clutter. <laughs> you know, you mentioned headphones, but you can also put in earplugs. You could put on headphones with some, like, light ambient music. Just something to keep the noise distraction down or social interruptions. Um, something else people find really helpful is to keep a list. I, I actually really find this helpful myself. Keep a list of tasks. And so when a task pops to your mind, you just write it down so that you don't have to try to keep track of so many things. Like, that takes a lot of space up and will kind of tax your mind. Um, So you can just jot it down and and deal with it when you have the time. And some people also find it helpful to keep, like, maybe a worry journal or just write down their worries, like, on a piece of paper or something like that, because your mind will keep going over your worries, kind of ruminating or just worrying. But if you can just sort of jot it down, that can really help free up some of your mind as well. Great. Uh, number 10 is to create some outcome measures to yourself. Track your goals and make yourself accountable accountable for outcomes, especially when you have these long tasks that don't have any reinforcers or really clear outcomes so that you don't fall into that trap of least resistance of doing something that's really reinforcing quickly, like checking an email. 
And we've done this, you know, in our in our own designing of the podcast. Just naturally, nobody said that we had to produce podcasts on a certain timeline. But <laughs> at least for us to have that deadline of let's try and have a podcast every two weeks automatically created an outcome come measure for us as well as accountability to each other to have it out. So that really helps with your motivation to get things done. If we didn't have that there, we probably would produce much less frequently than we do. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, it's helpful. Okay, the next tip is, you know, you might hear this, people sometimes say work, work smarter, not harder. Um, so basically reducing shallow work, just working more efficiently and in a f- smaller space of time and then turning the switch off. And one thing that can be really helpful is to prioritize really important tasks and to be realistic about how much you are going to be able to do in a time period. This is something I am so guilty of, and I could totally relate to this in that book I mentioned, Overwhelmed. Um, Really, basically what happens is that sometimes we have so much to do that we take on too much. We try to do too many things. We are unrealistic in our expectations of what we're going to get done, and that can lead to being kind of indecisive, not knowing where to start, feeling overwhelmed and stressed out. Um, So what is a better strategy is to pick a few important tasks, just really prioritize, focus on those very intensely, and don't wait to do the important stuff until you've caught up on all the important, unimportant stuff. You know, you'll be like, oh, well, I'll do this really important project as soon as I've gotten my oil changed and responded to all these emails and this and this and that. Well, you're never going to be done with those unimportant tasks. So carve out the time to do the things that really matter to you and just focus on those and be more efficient. Great. And then lastly, let yourself be bored. So I mentioned at the beginning that attention is an endangered species. I think boredom boredom is even more of an endangered species. And it's actually really important for us to be able to tolerate boredom in order to do deep work. Because part of deep work is getting to a place where you get bored and being able to sit through that and stay focused. And what happens is that if every time you are bored, you stimulate yourself, you turn to your phone, I'm a little bit uncomfortable, your brain gets used to being rescued. And we get less and less tolerance for being able to, over time, be able to focus for long periods of time because we're getting, because we get bored during that focus. So we need to spend time teaching our brain to get comfortable with boredom. And some of the ways that we can do that is doing things like purposely leaving your phone at home when you go to do errands, purposely not having your phone when you sit at a doctor's appointment or when you're standing in line at the grocery store, not automatically turning your phone to escape. What would it be like to allow yourself just kind of be bored? And it actually takes a little bit more mental energy to do that. (laughs) So actually, it's important that we keep these brain circuitry intact. Yeah, yeah, we don't like being Um, bored, so we try not to, right? We don't like to. And and what uh, Cal Newport uh, talks about as well is that how people are thinking about uh, technology today is that they want to take a break from technology or even something called the internet Sabbath. Have you heard of that that term? Yeah, well, I've heard of um, analog Sundays or analog Saturdays or something. Yeah. Right. Take one day off. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what he argues is that that's sort of equivalent to going on a diet one day a week. And rather, (laughs) it doesn't really work. No. And rather, what we should be doing is the opposite. 
is that we're living our lives, engaging in our lives, and doing deep work and having meaningful connections, and then we take a break from our lives to go and do a little bit of online, internet, distracted stuff, yeah. and we go back to our focused lives. So it's a different way of thinking about it. Yeah. And certainly it's, um, in our society now, that's a harder thing to do, but I think that could be a goal if we yeah. want to be able to uh, have more attention. Yeah. You know, I think it's really important to do this with kids, too, to let kids have time when they're bored um, and they're not. You know, I see people driving around with, like, those little TV screens in their minivans. We, My husband and I have really made a priority with our kids of not, of letting them get bored because we both have fond memories of being bored in the car as kids. And so, you know, if it's a long trip, we'll give them a few toys or something like that. But we just want them to, like, look around and have conversations with each other and just kind of be bored in the car because that's what it's like. Yeah. It's sort of training them that it's okay. Well, thank you, Diana. This is really a good topic. I'm, I've found it helpful already in my own life, and I hope our listeners will also um, find it helpful in terms of just being able to hunker down and focus. Yeah, there's definitely things that I want to work on changing, my weather compulsion being one of them. <laughs> yes. Okay. Well, we will all continue to work on this. Yes. <laughs> all right. Okay. Bye-bye. Great to see you. You okay. too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes. You can also find us at www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's offtheclock, P-S-Y-C-H.com. Music by John Goo and Susie Stevens.